if you will take a moment and open up your handout, you're going to notice that you have some of the notes for today. They are not exhaustive. Uh, if that were the case, Mary would have never went home. Uh, but they are, but they are stapled together because we've got so much we're going to cover. But I, what I want you to pull is this chart. Is the chart it says so great salvation in it, and here's the reason why I want you to pull this chart is I asked her to cut it down specifically so you could end up doing this, taping it in your Bible to refer to, okay? And here's the reason why. This chart explains what is often confounded many theologians, scholars, pastors, whoever that has dealt with the Word of God. This chart is insanely important. And the reason is, is because the word salvation does not always mean salvation. See, I say things like that to make sure you're paying attention. Let me explain more thoroughly what I mean. Whenever you're going through the Bible and you're doing study and you see this word salvation, the tendency is to commonly think, go to heaven when I die. We immediately take that understanding, and any time that that word will come along in the text, we have the tendency in order to read that meaning into that word. That is not always what that word means. In fact, what you see here, spiritually speaking, there are three tenses of salvation. And in fact, if you want to write this in, this will help you. Under the free gift or above the free gift, wherever you want to write this in. I didn't want to mess with the chart because I didn't come up with the chart. I wanted to make sure and cite it properly where it came from, but I couldn't manipulate it at all without having some kind of permission, and that's just too much. So I just ask you guys to write it. But under, uh, under free gift, you can easily write this. I have been saved. It's past tense. I have been. It's something that has occurred already. I have been saved. In the second column, under process, you can write, I am being saved. Currently. Presently. Under the third one for evaluation... You can write, I will be saved. Future. It's going to happen in the future. Now, let me help you with this as well as in relation to sin, because that's the whole reason why we talk about salvation is its relationship to sin. If we were doing that in the first column, we would say, I have been saved from the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin is what? Death. I have been saved from spiritual death. That's what I've been rescued from, which overwhelmingly in the Old Testament is what the word salvation means, to be rescued or be delivered from something. So I have been saved from the penalty of sin. In the second column, we would write down, I am being saved from the power of sin. Why is that? Because we all still live in this flesh, and this flesh still wants what this flesh wants, and when we talk about evil lusts and desires and passions that war against our soul, all kinds of things like that, what we're talking about is the struggle that we have as human beings trying to live Jesus's life in this life, but having the dead man still hanging upon us, dragging us down. When you read Romans 7, why is it the things I don't want to do are the things that I am doing? The reason is, is because the flesh is trying to win the war. That's the problem there. And the stuff that I want to do, 
I'm not doing that. It's because the flesh is constantly waging war. That's the reason why. So when we talk about this middle column, I am being saved from the power of sin. Now, what does that look like? You hear God's word. See, this all just in how cute I can be up here. I promise you. You may think so, but it's not. And I'm not just here to throw pins at people, okay? The whole idea is when we come together as a body under the headship of Christ and we open the truth and we hear the word, the word is meant to convict and elicit a reaction from us. And that is as small, and I don't mean small as in magnitude, but is as small as we would scope it as our minds being made to think differently about a subject, or it moves to the point of our actions, the way we live our lives, and the decisions we put forward being completely changed. Does that make sense? Okay. It all starts in the mind being renewed. The Bible is one big mind renewer, and that's what we are supposed to be about, renewing our minds. Why? So we think according to the truth instead of the world. By doing that, we are saved from the power of sin in our life because sin wants to creep up and grab us and drag us down. In Romans 6, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Why would Paul tell Christians that if it's not something that is possible of happening? So we have to be on guard with that. So when I hear the word and it changes the way I think or live, I just got saved. Does that sound weird? It does sound weird. I'm hoping today every single person in here gets saved. And you don't just get saved. You get saved and saved and saved. I want you to get saved to the uttermost. I want you to become so convinced of the truth of God's word that sin looks stupid when you entertain it. That's what I want. I want for the temptation of it to be removed because the glory of what Christ has accomplished on the cross and not just setting us free, but paving a new way by his blood blows your mind. That's what I want. I am here to blow minds through the truth. I want you to get saved. Another third one. I am or I will be saved. I will be saved from what? I will be saved from the presence of sin. When we are raptured, or pass away, sin will no longer have any presence amongst us. We will then be with the Lord Jesus forever. We are saved from the presence of sin. It will no longer be able to rear its head and have temptation in our life. So if that helps you, notice that the free gift is as a result of trusting Christ for salvation. That's the condition. Do you believe in Jesus? If so, you have eternal life. Had the awesome opportunity See, some of you might think James' study is boring or out of your way. We had the op- awesome opportunity to lead someone to Christ at last week's James study. They showed up here, and we got to share the gospel with them, and they believed and were saved. It was awesome. It was awesome. And I've been praying for it huge. Lord, I really need somebody to get saved, right? <laughs> praying for it. She heard. She believed. Eternal life. It's instantaneous. She is now justified. That is her justification that took place the next one the process is abundant growth and maturity this is what we refer to as sanctification and the word sanctification in the greek is derived from the same greek word where we get the word holy from it's the idea of being set apart 
And that's what happens. When we become more convinced of the word, we are being further set apart from the world and from sin and more unto Christ in particular situations. We're more convinced of his word in that direction. The third one, our evaluation, what's known as our glorification, is to determine our reward. You will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. It is for believers only. It will not take into account your sin. Why is that? It's already been taken care of. Sin's a done deal. Jesus already died for all your sins. But what about the ones I haven't committed yet? We hadn't committed any of them when Jesus died on the cross. All of our sins were future when he paid the price. But what it will be is commending us because we are convinced of his word and so respond to his word in how we live our lives. Does that make sense? That's not selfish. God is an extremely gracious and giving God. And he wants to reward his kids. And he gives us the word of God to read. And he gives us the indwelling Holy Spirit so that we will lack nothing in pursuing him for his glory. The more we trust him, the more we live in conformity to him, the more we can glorify him because you know what? He was right all along. That makes sense? So I hope, I'm not going to go over the whole thing, but I hope this chart is helpful to you. And the reason is, is because if you don't understand this, if you can't grasp this, you won't grasp the idea of what the Bible teaches about election. I think that's important. Now, for those of you that are super nerds, now raise your hand if you're a super nerd. All right, I like it. I don't know if I have that many candy canes. So we got to find something else. Those of you that are super nerds, I want to recommend this book. It is called A Defense of Free Grace Theology. It just came out in October. And a lot of the confusion that we face with the idea of election, predestination, the assurance of our salvation, the sheer fact of faith in Christ alone, it is all answered in here. Now, I will go ahead and tell you this. We do have a copy of this that is part of the library. But it is currently at Pastor Steve's house. (laughs) And I seriously don't know if there are any amount of cookies that will pry it from his hands, okay? You have to talk to him about it. This book is $24 on Amazon. If you have Prime, right? Two-day delivery. This book is worth the $24 just for the second chapter. The second chapter in this book will blow your mind because it lets you know all the confusion that we deal with sometimes in the Scriptures, where it came from. I'm not going to ruin it for you because I want you to get the book good stuff so with that being said and if you want to keep your notes alongside you that's great i'm not necessarily going to follow them verbatim but i do want to try to point out things as best i can let's take our bibles everybody has a bible right and so what else we need bible everybody got a bible everybody got a pen bible and pen bible and pen who needs a bible needs a bible excellent do we have any up here needs a bible needs a bible we'll get them I'm so jazzed about today's sermon, I, we're not even having Sunday school. Just, it's done and over with, right? I'm just messing with you guys. Keeping you guys till 1 o'clock. 
I already talked to Aaron Rodgers. He don't care. Absolutely, absolutely. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians is probably one of my most favorite books in all of the Bible. At the previous church I was at, we spent about two years in this book. <clears throat> We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1. I just want to read and we'll stop at verse 5 and explain to you some things about the text. It'll say some of it in your notes, but there might be some things we come across that we don't. Chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the what? Saints, important for you to note for this, this study, who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Where are they at? They're believers, they're in Christ. Location, location, location. Extremely important for this subject. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. What's that? It's already happened? It's already happened. He has blessed us. What's the pronoun? Us, which includes who? Includes Paul. Pay attention. Okay, anytime you see us, we, our, author is including himself with his audience of something that has commonly happened to all of them. It's, it spans out the whole thing. So notice, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Man, I could just stop here and pitch a tent and stay on this verse all day long. Get this. If you don't get anything else from the study, get this. You lack nothing in Christ. Nothing. You lack nothing. Whatever inadequacies we feel, whatever confusion we have about where we are in life, whatever problems we seem to be facing us, whatever discouragement comes about our way throughout a week, you lack nothing in Christ. You want to talk about a place to get your self-esteem? Cosmopolitan Magazine has nothing on Ephesians 1.3. I guarantee it. You have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, here is where everybody loses their minds, okay? Verse 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Everybody got that? You say, what in the world are we doing? Two weeks ago, we brought up the idea that Abraham is elect. He's called. He was called out of a place called Ur that was known for its paganism and called to a land that he had never been before. And the idea was is that God made a promise to him of land, seed, and blessing. And through his seed would come the eventual blessing of the entire world in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in doing this, his responsibility unto God is simply to live a faithful life with his progeny. To trust God to bring those things about. And he was elected. He was selected for that purpose, that task, that calling. 
We looked at a few other instances. King Saul was called, elected to be king. After him, David was elected to be king. We even saw Old Testament prophecies that referred to the Messiah as the chosen one of God. And when we cross-reference that with Luke 9.35, we find out that even at that time of the transfiguration, he is announced as the chosen one of God. Listen to him. He is the chosen one. Now, the common mentality that is brought to the idea of being chosen or elect is that there is a whole room full of people or the people that will ever exist, and God just kind of cherry picks whatever he wants to of who he wants to save. Everybody else is damned either by neglect or by him predestining them to the lake of fire of which they cannot be saved in any other way. Now this is affirmed with this doctrine that has been made up called total inability. They call it total depravity, but that's not what it is. It's total inability. No matter how many times you hear the gospel, you are unable to believe. So God has to reach in, flip the switch, so that you will be born again, which is essentially made alive. Then he takes the gift of faith and places it in you, and you will necessarily, at the time of his calling, believe because you have to because he made you alive and gave you faith and then you got to exercise it. Does that make sense? It doesn't make any sense to me because I can't find it in the Bible. See how I got you on that one? That was good. You guys are like, yeah, right. Oh, all right, right. No, 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 pastor, no, no. <laughs> Write it down, right? I love it. Thank you for being with me on this. This is so important. So now you come across a passage like this, a verse like this, and you say, okay, wait a second. It uses the word chose. Just as he chose us, oh, pronoun, Paul including himself, okay, chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we, is that a pronoun? Yeah. Should be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, in your Bible, it's important to remember this. In fact, if you pick up any commentary on Ephesians, it's worth its weight in gold. They will tell you that from verses 3 to 14, there is no punctuation in the original. And there's not. There's none. In fact, they, they accredited to the fact that Paul was just so jazzed about everything he wanted to tell these people, it just, and just came on right out. And he just had to write as the Spirit was leading him, okay? And then finally, ah, oh, verse 14, right? He can put a period at the end. And so any punctuation that you see from verses 3 to 14 is a translator's addition. They have broken up the sentences as they see fit, and they've put the punctuation where they believe it goes. I think they've gotten it wrong. Now, that's just my opinion. That might sound bold, and that's cool, but I have a reason why. Stick with me for just a second. If we're dealing with the idea of us and we in this entire part that we've seen so far, in fact, if you move on and you look through, you're going to find the word us in verse 5, us in verse 6, we in our in verse 7, us in 8, us in 9, we in 11, we in 12, you also, in verse 13, making a distinction, you, again in verse 3, and then our, in verse 14. The majority of what's going on here is the fact that Paul is including himself, so get this, this choosing is not an individual choosing. It's corporate in nature. Now, the interesting thing about Ephesians is, is we're not for sure that it was actually written to the Ephesians. It's actually a circular letter. It was a general letter that Paul wrote out 
for the purpose of sending to a church of which they could pull out some parchment and they would copy it and then they would move it on to the next church. How do we know that? Because there's really no personal interactions with anybody like the rest of his letters throughout there, except he brings up a guy named Tychicus, which is a great name. You guys, Tychicus. Name that child Tychicus. Exactly. Where's Rachel at? Tell her, Tychicus. There you go. I'll even show her how to spell it. It's T-Y-Ichicus. Right? That's how you spell it. So, Tychicus is the only guy that comes up in this whole thing. And so it's believed that the idea in Ephesus was added in later because when you copy it, you just put the name of your church in there. It's a general circular letter. That means it's applicable, its contents are applicable for all the churches. Now, Paul includes himself, so it means that this choosing is a corporate choosing. Now, here's the idea. Look at it again. Just as he chose us to be in him before the foundation of the world. Does it say that? Is to be in there. No. Notice this isn't about someone being chosen to go to heaven when they die. It's not about somebody being chosen to be in Christ. It's about people who are already in Christ being chosen for something else. Does that make sense? These are already saved people. In fact, according to this verse, you have to be in Christ in order to be considered chosen. Does that help anybody? Does that mess with your paradigm a little bit? I hope it does. Did anybody just get saved? No, just me. I get saved every time I read this. Okay. A couple of you. No, it's a head scratch. Never mind. Okay. You guys are going to get saved today, I promise you. Just as he chose us in him, when did he make this decision? Before the foundation of the world. Now, is God bound by time? He is not. And so any kind of time marker like that that would be included in the text is for our sake. It's for our benefit to know when something happens, right? It says here, that we would be, okay, hold it. We're getting ready to find out exactly what we, the church, the body of Christ, the bride, have been chosen to. What have we been chosen to? Here's what it is. That we would be holy and blameless before him, period. You weren't chosen to go to heaven when you die. You were chosen to be holy and blameless before him. Now, I have six and a half pages that I've written on just holy and blameless sitting out there on the counter going like hotcakes. Okay, nobody got up to go get them. Uh, but just letting you know, they're out there. And if for some reason you don't get one, and you'd like one because you're actually going to read it, I'll go through and i show how Paul uses holy and blameless throughout his epistles. How does he use it everywhere else? If you can find how an author uses a word or phrase or grouping or concept throughout the rest of his writings, it gives you a really good indication of strength about how he's using it right here where there might seem some confusion. You and I have been chosen to be holy and blameless before him. Now, here's the problem. Before him, and then you have a what? Period. Did Paul put that period there? No. It is my conviction that the idea of in love is to be included in this verse. In fact, if you notice how your verse is broken up, notice that whoever put the verse numbers in there, and I think that was around 1,600-something, I don't know for sure, but somebody put the verse numbers in there later because the original doesn't have them. Notice that they saw fit to not start verse 5 until you came to he predestined us. Everybody see that? 
Even the person who put the verse numbers in there thought that in love, apart from the punctuation, belonged with the concept of verse 4. What am I saying here? I'm saying that you and I are saved, justified, justification salvation, by hearing the gospel and responding in faith. That's how people are saved. And that is for whoever will believe. That is for everyone because Jesus paid the death price for everyone. His blood cleanses every sin. So salvation is made available for every person. However, now that you are in Christ, you have been chosen for a purpose, a task, and a vocation. And those things are, number one, as a body, we need to be holy and blameless before him in love. Now, what kind of love do you think this is here? Anybody want to guess? Agape love. And agape love is what? It's unconditional in its nature. Now, here's another question. When will you and I, as the church, be before him? When? Oh, here, let me help you. When? Oh, Connie! You can eat this now. The rest of the sermon might get boring. You might need that sugar. At the judgment seat of Christ. When will the church as a whole, when will we corporately be presented in some way before the Lord? When we are raptured from this earth, our mortal bodies, if we have passed away, are going to be risen up to meet our spirits in the air. We will meet the Lord in the air. We will be with them always, and we will immediately go to the judgment seat of Christ. And there will be an evaluation of everything we have done in the body, whether good or evil. For the good, crowns, riches, rewards, new garments that we will wear. For those things that are bad, it will actually cost us those rewards. They will actually be minuses in our favor. Are we still saved? Yes. Still in heaven? Yes. Still glorious bliss? Absolutely. I say, oh man, this doesn't sound fair. Will I be jealous? No, you won't, because you will have a glorified body saved from the presence of sin. We won't do anything but agree with the righteous judge, and he judges righteously, and he judges graciously. He is full of love, and he wants nothing but his kids to run the race in such a way as to win the prize. That's why he has blessed us, not just with the indwelling Holy Spirit, but with the very word of God so that we are knowledgeable. The only reason why we would suffer loss at the judgment seat of Christ will be of our own fault, of our own neglect, of, the, uh, of taking advantage of what he's given us. So when we're all going to be before him, is going to be the judgment seat. When we stand there, we are going to have to give an account of how we loved people. Love as far as Jesus is concerned, it's one of the most important things you can ever do with your Christian life, right? Love the Lord your God, heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. Love who? Ooh, and that doesn't just mean the guy next door, does it? That means even people here. Oh, right? Notice Tom's not here today. I can't make any cracks, right? But think about it. Loving your neighbor, loving the unlovable is going to be a big deal. So notice, what have you and I been chosen for? We've been chosen to be holy and blameless, to be set apart and without fault before him in how we've loved one another. You say, well, that's impossible. Not if you're reflecting on the love of Jesus for you. If your most concern 
with meditating upon how much Jesus loves you, man, it becomes really easy to love other people. It does. So that's what we've been chosen for. Now you say, time out, preacher. What about verse 5? I'm glad you asked. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. There it is. See, there was a time when we were lost and God chose us based on nothing we had done, good or bad, and then he determined a time of which we would become saved people. Is that what that means? The word predestined means to be pre... What's the other word for it? No, not predisposed, predestined. What is the other word for it? I just went blank. No, preordained. No, not preordained. That's foreordained. Uh, predestined, pre. Oh, good googly. Okay, predetermined, predetermined. It was determined beforehand. Something was determined beforehand. What was determined beforehand? He predetermined beforehand. He predestined us to be or to the adoption of sons. Now, here's the question: Has the adoption of sons already taken place? It has not. It has not. What? What? I love it. All God's people said, what? I love it. Turn over to Romans 8. Here's the beauty of this. Same author. And Romans 8 deals heavily with sanctification. And the idea of sanctification is the fact of we will suffer in this life. In fact, we're promised by Paul in 2 Timothy, all who desire to live godly lives will suffer in Christ Jesus. If you desire to pursue after him, if you desire to take up your cross and follow him, to give up your life in this world so that you will attain an amazing standing before him in the life to come, if that's the case, you'll suffer. Why is that? Because Christ suffered. Not just sharing in his suffering, but we're promised if we share in his suffering, we will be sharing in his glory. Now, everybody, just to prove that, look at verse 17 of chapter 8. He says here, And if children, if we are children, let's do 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. You've been saved. You're saved? You're a child of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if, everybody see that? If, that means there's a contingency that has been brought into play. If, indeed, we what? We suffer with him. So that, here's the reason, we, will, we may also be glorified, not just glorified, period, glorified with him. Glorified with him. Now you say, what does that have to do with adoption of sons? Let's follow the argument. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the sufferings that you're going to going through right now, the sufferings that you've had to deal with or that are going to come about in your life, notice what he says about them. They're not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Get this. When you stand there at the judgment seat of Christ, and if we have been faithful, we will hear the words from Jesus himself. It says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You, will fa- you were faithful with little. I will make you over much. It is a responsibility on behalf of the Savior to serve him in a greater capacity. Does everybody see that? If that is the case, 
then whatever we're dealing with right here is like your breath on a cold day. It's here for a second and it's gone. Why is that? Because you can't even begin to describe how glorious, wonderful, majestic, and beautiful it will be to see what is on the other side of this life. He is infinitely glorious and he wants to share that glory with you and I. That's what he's getting at. So here's what he's doing. He's encouraging them in their suffering. You're going through a hard time? Guess what? ain't nothing compared to what's out ahead so keep your eyes out ahead and that'll help you get through the right now he says here verse 19 for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of god for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, when all this comes down the pipe and glorification enters the picture, no more snow. That's the idea. No more earthquakes. No, well, I don't know about the bears, but anyway. Verse 22, for, here's a reason. We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together, Until now, earthquakes, right? Famines, pestilence, lots of problems on this earth, just of a physical nature that we don't have anything to do with. Verse 23, and not only this, but we ourselves, notice the we, the pronoun, Paul speaking of himself in the church he's writing to, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Time out. What are first fruits? Do we know? Whenever there would be a harvest that would be coming about and God has blessed the land, the children of Israel were commanded to take a portion of the crop that was coming and bring it into the temple and offer it unto the Lord as an offering. And what this did was, is number one, it kept their minds focused upon where the blessing for growing crops came from to begin with because he is the provider, correct? But, you sure? Okay, I just want to make sure. You're like, I, I think, yeah. yeah, he's the provider. Just letting you know, back here in the Old Testament. He's a provider. But not only that, it is anticipation of the future blessing to come from bringing the crops all the way to their harvest time. So it is honoring God both on the front end in anticipation of him fulfilling what he has said he would bless them with if they would honor him on the back end. Does that make sense? So first fruits is the first offering that comes. So notice what it says. Read it with that in, in, in understanding. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Do you have the first fruits of the Spirit? Do you think we totally understand the indwelling Holy Spirit we have right now? No. You think we'll see it more clearly at glorification? Absolutely. I think we'll all lose our eyeballs is what I think. So it says here, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. How many of you got crazy knees? Yep, okay. How many of you like Ben Gay is your best friend? Yeah, that kind of thing, right? When somebody asks you, hey, what are you having for dinner? Like, a leave is the first thing on your list. That's what we're talking about. These bodies break down, right? It's going to all go downhill. So notice this, though. We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, right? He predestined us for adoption as sons, Ephesians 1.5. The redemption of our what? When is your body redeemed? I I promise you it's not right now because some of us are liars. It'll be at the rapture, won't it? It'll be at our glorification. When does the adoption of sons take place? At glorification. When life is hard and we're like, I just can't take anymore. What are we waiting for while we're groaning about 
our bodies not doing right, people lying to us, having all kinds of problems, whatever. What are we doing? We're actually waiting for a time when Christ reigns supreme and perfectly. We're waiting for a time of perfect righteousness. Why? Because these bodies will be completely changed and glorified to be in his presence. We await eagerly the adoption of sons. What is that? It's the redemption of my body. When I die, my spirit goes immediately to be with the Lord. But it's not until the rapture comes that my body is caught up and transformed in the air and joined again to my spirit in order to stand before him in his presence. If my, if my earthly body was in his presence right now, I would disintegrate. That's the reason why. Too much for me to take. So he's got to give me a changed body to be able to handle him because you can't handle him. Everybody got me? So notice, the adoption of sons is future. Sure. Yep. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord immediately in our spirit. However, your body goes through the funeral service and you're, you're buried or cremated or whatever it is here on earth. But when the rapture comes, what's it say? The dead in Christ will rise first, correct? Man, that's going to be fun. You kind of wish you were here to see it, you know? Because everybody's going to be like, Right? I love it, man. That's National Enquirer stuff right there. It's great. And so they're going to pop up. The dead in Christ will rise first. This is uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are still alive, notice that Paul believed the rapture was coming in his time. It's present tense for him. We who are still alive at his coming will be gathered up with him in the air, and so we will be with him always. Our bodies will be gathered. The bodies of the dead will be gathered up to meet the spirits who are already in the Lord's presence. That's the idea. So, good stuff, right? Man, I've only got eight minutes. There's a lot of notes. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? I'm going to yell more and talk faster, right? That's a bad way to handle it. So let's do this. I'm going to, you can read the notes on Romans 8. It doesn't deal with the word chosen or chose or elect, but it does have the concept of predestination there. And so I want to give you guys notes on it. If you have questions, you can email me. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2. I still have three candy canes, and one of them is striped all kinds of colors. So get ready for it. What's up? It's cherry? Okay, I'm saving that for myself. I got two candy canes left. <laughs> so notice, 2 Thessalonians 2. We're starting chapter 2, verse 1, and here's the reason why. You always, always, always want to get context before you hit a passage in question or a verse in question. One of the problems I have when I talk with people who hold to this view uh, that God has predestined people before they were ever even born and that type of thing to justification, salvation. When I talk with them, one of the biggest things is, well, here, what about this verse? Well, what about this verse? Well, what about this verse? And my question is always, what is the context surrounding that verse? And then when we begin to talk context, they tell me I just don't understand their viewpoint, and then they don't want to talk to me anymore. Um, <laughs> chapter 2, verse 1 of Second Thessalonians. Now we request you, brethren, saved or unsaved, saved people, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. When is that? When will the Lord come and gather us to him? The rapture. Notice there's a lot of relationship going on here with this idea of chosen and that kind of stuff. And when the rapture comes, the coming of the Lord. Notice that. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, somebody got into their heads, hey guys, Jesus has already come. 
how come you guys are still here? We must not be saved, right? So they're freaking out about that. Notice Paul says, calm down. The day of the Lord hasn't come. Don't freak out. It's okay. Let's, let's, Let's shore this up and let's give you some framework around it so that you understand better that the rapture hasn't occurred. Not just the fact that Paul's writing to them because he should have been raptured too. Verse three, let no one in any way deceive you for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. Everybody see that? Let no one in any way deceive you. Let me just tell you real quick. The best way to do that is to know your Bible. This is the exact same thing in Matthew 24 that Jesus tells his apostles. The first thing he says when they ask him questions, will you tell us about the sign of your coming and the the end of the age and all this stuff? The first thing he says is, let no one deceive you. That's the very first thing that comes out of his mouth. Deception in the end times is going to be a big deal. We see it all over the place right now. So notice, this is what Paul says dealing with it right here. Let no one deceive you in any way, right? For it will not come, the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The falling away comes first. Now, some people have translated this as rapture. I don't think that's what it is. I don't think that the world gets better. I think that the world gets worse. And I think what we're going to see is a high rejection of truth in the church. I think that the only direction for the church dispensation to go is down. Now, just because that's a reality doesn't mean that we don't be faithful and give up. That's the dumbest thing in the world. We would never want to do that. We'd be faithful stewards of everything that the Lord has given us. But what we see is, is a painted picture of a future time where there's going to be a lot of people who reject the faith. Now, we read that throughout the Bible, right? Hymenaeus, I think is is how you say his name, and Alexander, right? They shipwreck their faith because they blaspheme against God. We see instances like that where things go on. How many of you, raise your hand, I'm curious, know somebody who knows the Lord but has walked away from the faith, walked away from the church? Good grief. What in the world is wrong with people? You see what I'm saying? But this isn't a far-fetched conception for us to understand. So it says here, the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now let me say this. I don't think it's right for us to call this end times figure the Antichrist. And the reason is, is because that's brought up in John's epistles. It's not brought up any time in reference to who this person is, either in Thessalonians or in Revelation. He's never called the Antichrist. That's important. What is he called? He's called the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. So let's call him what the Bible calls him, okay? It says here, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. In other words, when the man of lawlessness will peel back the curtain and he will walk into the holy of holies of the temple and he will sit down and he will tell all the Jews, I am your God, worship me or die. And that's when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, don't even go get your coat. Don't worry about putting your shoes on. Run for the hills. Get out of harm's way. Because he will start slaughtering everyone who does not bow to him and worship him. This is, an, this is that same event taking place. Verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And I want to say no, Paul, because I wasn't there for that. So if you could reiterate that in the word somewhere, I would really appreciate it. It just helps me know it better. Verse 6. And you know what restrains him now, and I believe that's the Holy Spirit, so that, here's the reason, in his time, he will be revealed. God has a time that he's going to allow this to take place. He's got a time that it's all going to come about to fruition. It says here, verse 7, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, notice, he who now restrains, which I believe is the Holy Spirit, 
will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. Now, I know some of you women just nudged your husband and be like, you could slay some people with the breath of your mouth, right? But that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about that the Lord has halitosis. That's not the idea. The idea here is that when he shows up, all it's going to take is literally nothing beyond an all-powerful God in order to destroy the lawless one. And with the amount of devastation he's going to have over the earth, it's going to be incredible. God barely has to do anything to put him down for good. That's the idea. So notice verse 9. That is, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth as to be saved. Why did they perish? Because they didn't receive Christ. Everybody see that? They're responsible. It's their fault. Now watch this. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now that shouldn't surprise you because that's exactly what happened to Pharaoh. Pharaoh had multiple times to respond to the revelation of God right before his eyes. And because he hardened his heart against it, eventually God said, that's fine. Now I'm going to harden your heart since you refuse to respond to the truth. There are some believers, or I'm sorry, there are some people who, because they have rejected the truth, not believers, but who have rejected the truth so much that they are now to the point of God hardening their hearts in that direction. They've had multiple opportunities and they have refused to believe. Now watch this, verse 13. But we should, always give, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because he has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. There it is, chosen before the world to salvation. The question we need to ask ourselves when salvation, that word pops up is, salvation from what? Is this speaking of justification, salvation, sanctification, salvation, glorification, salvation? What do you guys think? Justification, salvation? See, nobody wants to answer. You're all scared. Or asleep. I got candy canes. If you answer correctly, I'll give you one. Sanctification? No. Glorification. Who said it? Oh, there you go. I was trusting the Spirit to direct it. But anyway... So notice, everybody's like, he's crazy. <laughs> Get me out of here. So notice, because God has chosen you from the beginning. Now, here's what's interesting. Does anybody have a little number next to from the beginning? You have a number there in your Bible. Some of you do. Some of you have these cross-references and elaborative notes. Anybody see that? Some translations actually say in this, right, first fruits. Interesting. From the first fruits. Might be worth studying. From the beginning, for, what have you been chosen for? Salvation. Through what? Okay, so hold on. This salvation that they have been chosen for comes about through the means of sanctification or through the means of being set apart. Does that make sense? It is only through the means of being set apart that this salvation is possible for them. Now watch what it says here. Let's continue on. By the Spirit, okay, and faith in what? The truth. Okay, everybody take a spiritual time out for a second. Pay attention. 
There is no other way that a Christian grows than by the truth being married together with the Spirit and then the production that comes out of it. Does that make sense? So what he's talking about here is not go to heaven when you die truth. This isn't justification, salvation. This is, this sanctification is going to lead you to the salvation. See, I feel like, who's that, Jesse Jackson? Salvation of the capitulation. I feel like using a lot of shun words at the end. But this sanctification is the means to get you to the salvation. And the only way that that's going to happen is if the truth and the spirit, notice faith in the truth, you believing the truth, it's belief. Believing in the truth, married together with your spirit so that it changes you to be different. That's sanctification. Now hold on, but why is it not sanctification? Salvation, verse 14. It was for this. What is this? It's this salvation. It was for this he called you through our gospel. That's how you got justified, but look what it says. That you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole reason why God called you is for glorification that's the reason why your holy and blameless standing before the lord at the judgment seat of christ is everything to god and how do we know that because he gave everything to make it happen he gave everything to make it possible now i'm going to ask this are any questions about that does everybody see how that works that the salvation in question is not just go to heaven when you die, but it's actually through sanctification, the Spirit and the Word being put together so that you will have a good standing at your glorification. Does that make sense? Questions? Don't everybody put your stuff away now. I wasn't kidding about keeping you. Everybody good? See, now some of you are nervous now. Questions? Any questions at all, please? Now here's the idea. So What? Why does it matter? I was thrilled. I was thrilled when some of you contacted me and said, you know what? I went home and I got out of concordance. And I laid it out. And I started going through and looking up every instance for choose and choosing and choice. And I started looking up elect and election. And I love it. I love it. Because you're concerned about what the Bible has to say about these things and you're willing to do the hard work to get in there to see it. She might ask the question, why in the world does this matter? Here's why this matters. is because if God did not choose and predestine certain people only to go to heaven, that means that the whole world is fair game. The whole world is fair game. And God couldn't have made it any easier. How do we know that? We're told in Ephesians chapter 2 that it was through the cross that he broke down the middle wall of separation. Not separation between Jew and Gentile, separation, separation between us and him. That wall has been broken down. We now see, exactly, praise God, we now see that every person, even the person when you're at Walmart and you look across and you're like, there's no way that person would ever believe in Jesus. Guess what? They're a candidate. How do we know? Blood's already paid for their sin. What's the problem keeping them from being saved? They don't believe. If they don't believe, they don't have life. Having life, being made alive, only comes about one way, and that is hearing the gospel and responding to it. So if that's the case, and if election has everything to do with the church having a glorified, 
holy and blameless standing because we are receiving the word and from the conviction that the Holy Spirit brings by the word, we are getting saved. We now have a mandate to go out and reach those people. It is an amazing, beautiful, incredible end that God has set out for us. He has chosen us for that mission, for that task, to reach people, to bring them in to the body of Christ, simply by telling them the message. See, here's what's amazing is, is election has a lot more about what God wants for us rather than what he didn't want for certain people. The whole idea of this calling, this what we're to be about, it's everything that's tied up into why we were chosen. Why were we chosen? We were chosen so that in our love for one another, we would be homely and blameless before him. Why were we chosen? We were chosen so that by being sanctified, we would be prepared for this amazing, glorious glorification salvation that he is going to be bringing about. God wants us all to stand mature. God wants us all to stand unstained before him because we wouldn't allow the things of the world to go over the truth of his word. What is one of the greatest ways he can be glorified? Well, if the gates are wide open and if the cross has broken down the wall of separation, why are we not sharing the gospel more? Why are we not telling people about Jesus? Why do we discount and disqualify them in our minds before we ever open our mouths or share our hearts with them? If that convicts you, you just got saved. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word. And I pray, God, that we would get saved numerous times today because the power of sin wants to tell us that only certain people go to heaven. Some people wouldn't believe. They wouldn't be receptive. That we don't have a responsibility to share the gospel. That we don't need to be making disciples. And Father, your word speaks everything the opposite to that. So Father, save us from that deception. Give us clarity of mind. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.